Last week, uh, Pastor Rick discussed part two of the categories of actual sins. And as we continue on today, I want to touch on another kind of sin that some of you may or may not have heard of. This type of sin is known as the unpardonable sin. I'll never forget when I was younger, my mother, she took me to a doctor because she suspected that I might be struggling with depression. And I remember after taking a test, this kind doctor pulled me aside and she spoke to me and said, you know, she whispered in my ear and she said, your mother told me that you go to church a lot. And I said, yes, I I do. (laughs) Then she says, you do realize that if you end your life, that's a one-way ticket to hell, right? Now, I had no plans on ending my life, but I understood what she was trying to do. She wanted to help me, uh, and, and I understood the heart behind those words. Out of, out of the kindness of her heart, she wanted to say whatever it took for me not to let depression lead me to suicide. Now, she was a doctor, not a theologian. Yet as off as she might have been theologically, I appreciate her heart behind it. But it also led me to think on the question of what is the sin that is the one-way ticket to hell? What is the unpardonable sin? And does the Bible speak of such sin? Now the question on what exactly is the unpardonable sin has been boggling the minds of many people for centuries. And I can only imagine how many Christians out there uh, have become very distraught, wondering whether or not they might have committed that unpardonable sin themselves. On the other hand, Many non-Christians ignore the possibility of there even being such a sin since uh, many of them are unwilling to admit that they are sinners to begin with. And there are some who simply assume that the unpardonable sin is the bigger sins, right? Like murder and adultery, because they see the serious consequences that those sins bring to society. But I can tell you with full assurance that neither of those sins, right, uh, murder or adultery, are the unpardonable sins. How do we know this? Uh, Well, we know that Paul was a murderer before conversion, and yet he wrote most of the New Testament. And we know that David, who was actually guilty of both murder and adultery, somewhat, and yet he wrote the Psalms. So then, what is the unpardonable sin? And that's the topic of today, unpardonable sin. We're going to look at it in three points. I'm going to discuss it in these three points. Number one, we're going to look at the Biblical references to this kind of sin. We're going to look through the scriptures and see where do we get this idea that that sin even exists. And then point number two, the unwarranted opinions of that sin. So we're going to look at some views in history, some views in the past of of these verses and this particular kind of sin and see what were some of the opinions. And then, of course, point number three, I'm going to talk about the orthodox view, which is the reform understanding of this sin. So point number one, the biblical references to this sin. So let's start by looking first at some of the key passages in the Bible. Um, We'll start with Mark 3, 28 through 29. Can someone read that passage? Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Thank you. Let's look at another verse. <clears throat> Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Can someone read that? 
Thank you. Let's look at another uh, verse here, Luke 12, 10. Someone read that. Thank you. Yeah, so in the Gospels, which we just looked through some of the verses in the Gospels, we see that this sin is one that is done against who, specifically? The Holy Spirit. Let's look at some more verses. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Can someone read that? Good. Another scripture. <clears throat> Hebrews ten, twenty-six through twenty-seven. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins, but a, te- a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Yeah, so we just looked at a few passages in Hebrews. Now the verses in Hebrews are not as explicit about sinning against the Holy Spirit. Yet you see, um, you, you can make the connection as it relates to the rejection of at least the Spirit's work, right? Let's look at another passage. 1 John 5.16. Someone read that. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, shall ask, and God will give him life. Those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death, and do not say that one should pray for that. Yeah, so there we have seen the verses that speak on the sins that are unforgivable, right? Now, before we look into the different views on this, I think it's important to get a few things in perspective. One of the rules in properly interpreting the scriptures is this, that we must always allow the passages in the Bible that are more clear to us, the ones that are most clear to us, to uh, shed some light on those verses that are not as clear to us. In other words, when we struggle with passages that are not easy to understand, we must first gather up the passages that are easier and clearer and use them to shed light on the passages that aren't clear. So when we look at some of these verses, it can can be confusing because we have all these presuppositions in our mind. When we look at these passages, all of a sudden we start thinking things like, man, I think I can lose my salvation, or man, this is talking about a sin that if you do it, you know, there's no hope for you. But it's important to first start with the passages that are clear. What, what are the verses in the Bible that are clear to us in regards to some of the subjects that are being discussed here? So in this case, when we talk about the subject of a possible sin that is unforgivable, we're questioning matters of salvation, but more specifically on issues of justification. So, therefore, we must start with what the Bible already clearly teaches about forgiveness and justification. So, let's go back. Let's look at verses that talk about salvation and justification. Let's look at uh, these two verses here. Galatians 2.16 and Titus 3.5. Who would like to read both? I'll read. Thanks. Yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Amen. Titus 3.5, 
he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so here we see that the benefits of salvation are a work of the Holy Spirit. You see that uh, in, the, in the end of Titus 3, 5. Uh, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the benefits of salvation are a work of the Holy Spirit. So let's keep that in mind when we think about the unpardonable sin. Let's look at another verse. Galatians 3, 1 through 29. Can someone read that? posing sort of a hypothetical question. But again, you see that reference to the Spirit. Um, uh, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So by faith we receive the Holy Spirit and that, uh, all, that, all the benefits that were accomplished in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection are now applied to us by faith. And that faith is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now... Let's look at verses that speak about condemnation, okay? Because since we're talking about the unpardonable sin, let's think about condemnation. What are the verses that speak on this? We got John 3, 18, Romans 8, 1, and Romans 8, 30. Can someone do all three? Okay, so these were very clear verses that we read, right? So judging by these verses, condemnation, what can we conclude? Number one, that condemnation is not for those who are in Christ, right? We can lock that one down, throw the key in there, don't go back to it. Which means that the unpardonable sin is not one committed by a true Christian, right? Makes sense? Since he has, since he has sealed us for the day of redemption, this is important to keep in mind as we try to make sense of the verses dealing with the unpardonable sin. We must allow these verses to inform the others if we want to be consistent with what the Bible teaches overall. So now, now that we have looked at these verses, let's explore some of the views throughout history regarding the unpardonable sin. And then we will end with the Reformed view, which I believe to be the biblical view. Okay, so here are the unwarranted opinions of this sin. There are a variety of opinions about the nature of the unpardonable sin throughout history. I'm just going to go over a few with them today. The first one is St. John Chrysostom, which is, uh, he's from 349 to 407 AD. Archbishop of uh, Constantinople, who was an important early church father. He is known for his preaching and public speaking, his denunciation of abuse of authority by both ecclesiastical and political leaders, 
the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and his aesthetics sensibilities. Okay, that's just a little bit background. But John Chrysostom, and uh, I'm sorry, along with St. Jerome, see I put both of them there, along with St. Jerome, who was a theologian and, his, uh, and a historian also from the late 4th century, who also became a doctor of the church, and he was a son of Eusebius, best known for his translation of most of the Bible into Latin, and also his commentaries on the gospel. Just a little background on these two gentlemen. Uh, this is uh, 4th century, 349 through, through 407 A.D. So Chrysostom and Jerome thought of the unpardonable sin as a sin that could be committed only during Christ's time on earth and held that it was actually committed by those who were uh, convinced in their heart that Christ performed his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in spite of their conviction, they refused to recognize these miracles as such and ascribed them to the operation of Satan. So they, they basically viewed it, uh, the unpardonable sin um, on, based on what they saw in Mark 3, 22 to 30. We're going to look at that. Um, and during that time when they saw Jesus perform these miracles, they accused Jesus of using the power of Satan rather than, uh, you know, doing these miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that, that switch, that saying, okay, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's Satan, uh, basically demonizing his, uh, his miracles. Uh, it was thought that 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 thinking, that kind of thinking was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and was considered the unpardonable sin. Uh, so actually, let's do this. Let's read this and that's going to break it down for us. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So you see here, what they did was they accused Jesus of uh, uh, using the power of Satan as opposed to doing his miracles by the Holy Spirit. And so, again, the, the view uh, from Chrysostom and Jerome was that the unpardonable sin was just this temporary uh, sin that only existed when Jesus was here on earth. And to accuse him of being under the power of Satan um, was basically blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so they thought, well, that's the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is calling Jesus Satan when Jesus is God or, or being, uh, being used by the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that pretty clear? Okay, here's another verse. Um, actually, that's a continuation. Mm, okay, actually, yeah, let's, let's continue with what that says here. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So that, that sort of clarifies it in, in that verse, that uh, Jesus was rebuking them for calling 
that which is clean, unclean, or, or that, that which is of God, that attributing it to Satan. Um, okay, let's, let's uh, where am I? Okay, so uh, let's see. Let's look at another verse here. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So keep that in mind here. Um, That's another verse that uh, sort of describes the uh, unpardonable sin. Uh, but we'll go back to that. Anyway, I'll skip that for now. Correct. Yeah, so uh, and we're going we're gonna to actually break that verse down. Um, there are certain verses that uh, you would see people partaking in the benefits of what we would see only believers partaking in. Um, and so it would, it would seem as if this person was a believer and then he departed or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And how is that even impossible? Uh, but we're going to look, as we get into it, we're going to look and see that um, the, the people who departed or uh, were apostate, they left the faith, technically, were not actually of the faith. And so it may seem that they partook of the benefits of the Holy Spirit, uh, but were really not partakers of of it in, in a regenerate sense. Okay, let's look at another, uh, another point in history. We have Augustine. Okay, Augustine conceived the unpardonable sin as consi- consisting in, uh, this is a Latin phrase, I'm going to try to say it, impoenitentia finalis, which meant in, impenitence persisting to the end. Okay, that's, that's basically a statement of what he believed, and I'm going to break that down. So some of you may be familiar with the word penitence, right? Are you guys familiar with the word penitence? Which means a sad or humble realization or regret of a sin act that, that you might have committed. Well, what Augustine believed, along with a few Lutheran uh, dogmaticians and Scottish theologians, was the opposite of penitence, which was impenitence of sin and unbelief as to be the unpardonable sin if it were to be, if it was persisted to the end of your life. Um, a very similar and related view is the one that, that's more popular today, expressed today, which is continued unbelief or refusal up to the very end to give your life to Christ and accept him by faith. So again, Augustine, uh, a, a similar view, just to explain it in simple terms, was this idea that if you stayed in your sin um, or if you stayed in a state of unbelief till the end, that was the unpardonable sin. Because you stayed in unbelief, you never repented, right? And so you meet your death and your punishment is eternal hell because you've, you've never repented of your sin. Um, and for the most part, much of that is very true, right? However, even though placing faith in Christ is what brings forgiveness uh, to a hopeless sinner, sinner, the Bible seems to be much more specific about the unpardonable sin. So, in general, we know that a person who doesn't repent, right, who lives a life of no repenting or disbelief, um, and, and, then, and then passes away, 
we, we can say, well, yeah, you know, that person committed the unpardonable sin. But, but it's very general. I mean, we know the reality that those who uh, live a life of unbelief till the end and don't uh, have regret of sin and don't come to repentance and live a life to the end and die, we know that for the most part we can at least judge that that person might have never been saved to begin with. So it's, it's a very general idea. It doesn't really bring us to a clear definition of what exactly is the unpardonable sin. And when we looked at the verses that speak on the, unpar- uh, the unpardonable sin, uh, it seems to be something much more specific than just this general idea that, okay, if you don't repent, uh, then that, that means you're going to hell. There's a specific kind of sin. We, we, have, to, we have to try to understand what that is. Um, and uh, we'll get there. Uh, let's look at this verse. And here we see, when we look at this verse, we see more of a specific nature of this sin, right? It's not just this general, okay, if you don't believe or if you don't come to faith, then that's the unpardonable sin. There's something specific about that sin. Let's read it. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, okay, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But now we get into this, this part where it gets specific on a certain kind of sin. It says, there is sin that leads to death. What kind of sin is that? And we're going to try to unpack it. I do not say that one should pray for that. Why? Because it's unpardonable. Okay? So you see, you see how it's, it's not the, just this general unbelief. There's, a speci- there's specificness to, to what this sin is. Okay. Uh, later theologians... Um, here, you'll see this. This is just uh, Lutheran theologians. Later Lutheran theologians um, had this other idea of what this uh, sin might be. It says, most of us, I'm guessing, are familiar with the P in the tulip. Are you guys familiar with the P in the tulip? So I'll break it down. Uh, the P stands for Persever- Perseverance of the Saints. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that acronym, each letter in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, um, each of those letters stands for a key doctrine in the Reformed faith. But more specifically, the P, perseverance of the saints, is the belief that everyone who receives salvation by faith in Jesus are also guaranteed perseverance, or rather uh, are being preserved by God in saving faith until the end. And so us as Calvinists or us who believe in the Reformed doctrine, we believe in the tulip, each letter standing for a a certain doctrine. The P specifically we hold to, and that means that uh, we believe that the scriptures teach that those who have been saved will persevere to the end. They won't lose that salvation because they weren't, they never obtained it themselves to begin with. It was a gift from God. And so God who saved you will also bring you to the end persevere you through life, and bring you to glory. The Lutherans have denied that doctrine. And in connection with their denial of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, later Lutheran theologians then taught that only saved people could commit the unpardonable sin as they sought to support their view according to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Let's look at that passage. So they get this idea that this unpardonable sin is one that believers actually commit. And they get it from this, this passage here. Can someone read uh, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6? 
possible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, so looking at the scripture without considering other parts of the Bible, one can assume many things when you look at that passage. But like I mentioned before, this is the reason why, one, why we must allow the clear passages to inform the not-so-clear passages in order to gain more consistency in, in, in what the Bible teaches. This last position of the Lutherans is an unscriptural position, and the canon of Dortz has already re rejected it, right? Among others, also of the era of those who teach that the regenerate, those who have been born again, can commit an unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. That's completely unbiblical. And as we continue on, we'll look back at that passage. We're going to break that passage down and see what, what that actually is saying. We'll get there uh, when I get into the Reformed view of, of this particular sin. So we've discussed many unwarranted views of the unpardonable sin, but now let's talk about uh, the Reformed view. In this final point, the Reformed view, uh, let's look again at this, this verse here, and I'll try to break it down in a way that seems consistent with Scripture. But what I want to do is take this and broaden it, and let's look at, let's look at it from, uh, from verses 4 all the way through 12, and we, we get a better context of what that passage is actually trying to say. So I'm going to read it. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Verse 7, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who, whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end to be burned. But we speak in this way, yet in, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints, I'm sorry, serving the saints as you still do. And we deserve, I'm sorry, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the key to the whole thing is verses 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now, again, I'll repeat, given the clear teaching of Scripture that those who God has truly saved will persevere in faith to the end, you have verses like John 10 and Romans 8 that speak about this uh, eternal security, we can safely reject this past, that this passage is at all alluding to saved people losing their salvation. We can safely reject that idea which many would say that the author of Hebrews is saying is the unpardonable sin. And therefore, 
could not be saved again, since it would be like crucifying the Son of God again, like it seems to be saying in this passage. We know from passages in John and Romans that the Bible clearly teaches that salvation cannot be lost by us because salvation was not obtained by us to begin with. It is a gift from God and not of our doing. So in light of those passages, the author of Hebrews, what, what he's saying uh, in this passage, he's describing the apostates in verses 4 through 8, this first part. He's describing the apostates in terms of their profession and the blessings that they appeared to share with genuine believers up to the moment of their apostasy. So when you look at these verses and you see, man, once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, that sounds like believers, um, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, that sounds like believers losing their salvation, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God uh, and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, who in the world has tasted the goodness of God and, and part, uh, shared and partook uh, in the Holy Spirit and then all of a sudden has fallen away? Um, again, we, we, we know that Jesus saves completely, right? Keep these things in mind. Hebrews 10, uh, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, right? We also see in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So in regard to them being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, and sharing the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, what does that mean? Well, here's a commentary from John Calvin, what he says about uh, those verses. This is what John Calvin says, and I quote, To all this I answer, that God indeed favors none but the elect alone with the spirit of regeneration. Okay, so when it comes to real saving faith, the work of the Holy Spirit in saving the person and regenerating the person, that's only a benefit that uh, those who God has elected can partake of. Okay, so he says here, God indeed favors none but the elect alone with the spirit of regeneration, and that by this they are distinguished from the reprobate. For they are renewed after his image and receive the earnest of spirit, the gospel sealed in their hearts. And then he goes on by saying, but I cannot admit that all this is any reason why he should not grant the reprobate also some taste of his grace, why he should not uh, irradiate their minds with some spark of his light, why he should not give them some perception of his goodness, and in some sort engraved his word on their hearts. Otherwise, where would be the temporary faith mentioned in Mark 4.17, which is referring to that parable of the sower? There is therefore some knowledge even in the reprobate, which afterwards vanishes away, either because it did not strike roots sufficiently deep, right? You remember the parable that was spoken about, uh, spoken, uh, that Jesus spoke about, that some would receive it, but it would not take root. He says, there is therefore some knowledge, even in the reprobate, which afterwards vanishes away, either because it did not strike roots sufficiently deep, or because it withers, being choked up. So uh, what, what John Calvin is saying about uh, this verse here, Hebrews 6, 4, 12, and when it talks about 
uh, people who tasted some of the benefit of the Holy Spirit um, and, and, what, uh, and some of the knowledge of, of the word is simply unbelievers who shared in the blessing amongst other unbelievers but yet have fallen away. Again, they might have received some of the benefit of being around believers and partaking in some of the things that they partook and receiving some blessings that were um, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but they themselves were not regenerate. Um, and we see this through this verse. Again, 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, the, the people who are falling away were not elect. It says, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, conclusion. So what exactly is the unpardonable sin? All that to say, what is the unpardonable sin? Uh, and, and I'm out of breath because it, it takes so much to get to that point and to properly understand what, what these verses mean because we can't ignore the other parts of Scripture. We, we see that the Scripture clearly teaches that it is a sin against the Holy Spirit. However, we also see that it is a specific kind of sin against the Holy Spirit, right? Because there are sins against the Holy Spirit that are, in fact, forgivable. You don't believe me? Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed in the day of, of redemption. This tells us that while being sealed for the day of redemption, there are times that we sin against the Holy Spirit by grieving it, right? So what kind of sin is the unpardonable one? The Bible speaks more specifically of a speaking against the Holy Spirit. We see that in verses uh, like Matthew 12:32 and Mark 3:29 and Luke 12:10. It is evidently a sin committed during the present life which makes conversion and pardon impossible. The sin consists in the, con the conscious, malicious and willful rejection and slandering against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in regards to the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to evil and Satan. So, uh, in other words, we see clearly uh, the truth from God and we actively harden our hearts against it. We harden our consciences against it. Um, to the point that we attribute that which is good, that which comes from God, the Word of God, we attribute it to that which is evil. Um, and we see that throughout the world. We see people doing this um, in many ways, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit in that way. Uh, but just for, for the sake of clarity, I'm going to quote uh, Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology book and how he describes that sin to be. He says, This sin itself consists not in doubting the truth. I guess we all doubt, right? But not in doubting the truth, nor in a simple denial of it, but in a contradiction of it that goes contrary to the conviction of the mind, to the illumination of the conscience, and even to the verdict of the heart. In committing this sin, man willfully, maliciously, and intentionally attributes what is clearly recognized as the work of God to the influence and operation of Satan. That's what it means to commit the unpardonable sin. It is nothing less than a decided slandering of the Holy Spirit, an audacious de declaration that the Holy Spirit 
is actually the spirit of the abyss. It's attributing evil to the works of the spirit. That the truth is a lie. And that Christ is like Satan. It is not so much a sin against the person of the Holy Spirit as a sin against his official work in revealing both objectively and subjectively the grace and the glory of God in Christ. So it's not so much uh, uh, a disrespect against the Holy Spirit, but rather a, a sin against his official working in revealing both objectively and subjectively the gospel, or the grace and the glory of God in Christ. So, uh, this kind of sin is unpardonable, not because the sinner is beyond the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, but because the sin itself, when you look at that sin and you describe what it is, by definition, is a type of sin that purposefully seeks the exclusion of the key components of conversion, right? The things that are required for that conversion to take place. The sin, what it is, its nature is... Uh, intentionally excluding those elements from it. Okay, so this kind of sin is unpardonable, not because uh, God can't save you, uh, but by definition, the, the sinner seeks to sear his conscience, allows for further hardening in his own heart, and therefore the sin is unpardonable. Um, and that's, that's the nature of, of what that sin is. Now, in conclusion... Um, as for any of you who are genuine believers and are worried that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, be encouraged. Because worrying about it might actually be one of the clearest evidences that you have not committed that sin. Because those who commit it will be so hardened in their hearts that they would not even care that they committed it. So we can be encouraged uh, if you're a true believer um, and if there is a healthy fear of God in you, um, that if, if you were otherwise, uh, if you were hardened in your heart, you wouldn't care whether you committed it or not. And in view of the fact that this sin is not followed by repentance, we can at least be sure that those who fear the Lord in this way have not committed that sin. So I close, by this, I close with this. Uh, let us praise God and be thankful to him that the unpardonable sin is not a sin that God in his sovereign plan will allow his people to commit. Amen? Amen. Okay. Um, any questions, by the way? Yes, sir. Uh, the, the verse that you had earlier, I think, is out of 1 John, which talks about praying for, uh, not, not to pray for the person who commits uh, the, the unpardonable sin. Uh -huh. uh, when you were going over that, I was thinking about in the Old Testament where it says that uh, I think God's going to bring judgment on Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And he said, I, I say that you don't pray for these people, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were to pray for them, for them then I still wouldn't deliver them. Is, right. that, kind of, is that kind of... Yeah, absolutely. On the same line, right yeah, and I think it, it's, it's not directly related, but in some way it is, because we see God's perspective on, on, on the sinner who is unwilling to, to repent. And so... Um, that's basically the same thing going on as far as God's reaction. I'm not going to forgive them regardless. Even if somebody were to pray for them, they're going to pray in vain, so I'm not going to forgive them. Correct. It's not, it, was, it wasn't part of God's sovereign plan to begin with. And so God has chosen to uh, give these people over. As cruel as that may sound. Yeah. 
Say that one more time. Correct. Yeah. So, in other words, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get. It. So my last statement was, um, uh, let's praise God and be thankful to Him that the unpardonable sin is not a sin that God in His sovereign plan will allow His people to commit. So, uh, in other words, if you've been saved, God has sealed you, on there, and there will not be any point in your life that you will commit that sin. Unless, of course, you're not saved. If you're not saved, many things are possible. Um, you can go completely the other way, as deep as, 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 as you want to go, according to, according to the desires of your flesh. And if God does not have grace and withhold some of your natural desires, if he just lets go, you'll go deep in the other way. Because that's, that's, that's in your nature to, 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 to continue in sin and, and run completely against God. However, if, if you are saved, there won't be any point in your life that you will be given over to a debased mind and a hardened heart in that way. So praise God for that. If you, if you are saved, um, that won't happen. Anyone else? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's so that's so clear. Like it, it is the the like you said, it is the work of the Spirit that we're sealed by, and so uh, there won't be any point that we'll contradict or go against uh, the work of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that that's actually saving us and and causing us to persevere to the end. So, anything else? There's, if, if you ever feel that you've committed a sin that you just feel it's unpardonable, you feel that God can't save you from, be encouraged because I don't know if you can out-sin Paul or I don't know if you can out-sin uh, David. I mean, he killed somebody so that he can take his wife and commit adultery. I, I mean, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think any of you guys have committed that kind of sin, but a lot of times we forget the, the grace of God and, and, it, and God's uh, power to save you in whatever state that you're in. Uh, of course, a complete denial of the Holy Spirit is a different, uh, different case, was, as we just went through. So, Any other questions? Comments?
actually sheds more light on the gospel because you get to see what kind of wrath you were saved from. Right. Thinking about how God would actually um, give some of the taste to those that are reprobate, give them a little bit of the taste that's insane yeah. for me to just comprehend that He would let them taste a little bit and then still get them into judgment and kind of wrath we were saved from. Yeah, that's a great uh, example, and I think it's a, it should be a warning for us um, that uh, if if you are being, I guess, convinced by let's just say false prophets, false teachers out there who claim to perform these miracles and these things that are spiritual to the common person, um, that by no means is a sign that the person is regenerate or even called by God. You know, so good points. Uh, yeah, very good points. People can partake and taste to some degree, but not in a regenerate form, in, in a regenerate way. Okay, we're out of time. Oh, did you have one? I have a quick question. Sure. It's, so would you say that all people aren't saved to commit the unpardonable sin, or is it just some of, like, a subset of those people? You said uh, all that are saved that won't? That aren't saved. Oh, that aren't saved? Um, yeah, no, 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 no. I would say that people who are not saved at this very moment um, are not necessarily committing the unpardonable sin. In other words, there's still opportunity for many of the elect to come to Christ because the unpardonable sin is not just merely unbelief and not coming to Christ. It's more than that. It's a, it's a direct rebellion against God, a direct rebellion against the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think everyone is committing to that degree. Um, yeah, so I hope that answers it. sound like we're creating a third category, but it, it's really all one category. People who are not... Yeah, it's just an extreme version of that category. Uh, okay, last one, and then we go. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Yeah. Right. God can still uh, save the man. Right. If, if they're chosen, right? Yeah, that's good. That helps uh, put it all sort of in perspective. Okay, very good. Let me pray. Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for this time. Uh, thank you for the questions. Thank you for the discussions. I pray that we think on these things and that it helps us to, uh, to, to see the gospel um, in, in a better light, Father. Help us to meditate and to think on the gospel um, because uh, if, if it wasn't for your grace, Lord, we too would fall uh, to the extreme end. Um, and and we, we thank you that you have um, saved us and chosen us and that your spirit has sealed us to the day of redemption. Father, we thank you and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.